0: did enjoy the film um and that video i mean i it's maybe boring to go into here but like it was just one of those like comic situations where they had like the guy's first day tending bar at the amc movie theater was like just then as we were showing up and it took him like 25 minutes to make the pina colada for the guy in front of us and i was just like tearing my hair out because we were just like it was already we like showed up at the time like oh the previews oh the previews and it was just like one comical thing after the other like he ran out of wine just as he was pouring wine uh for karina for my partner and then he like goes to get our beers and the kegs tapped i'm like that's it we're out of here uh, so it was like a lot of high stress to start that uh, movie going experience, but it was. Uh, I, I liked it. We're going to get into it a little bit, uh, I think, uh, w- with our guests here, which maybe this is a good segue to introduce them. We have Jacob Bacharach, the novelist and film disliker. Uh, uh he's gonna he's <laughs> gonna bring some spice here uh, later on and claire evans claire l evans author of broadband and technology writer and speculative fiction enthusiast canonist completist um and we're going to be talking about doing the film where it's at how it was how, how the weekend went and uh then we're going to get into the theme of the day which is oil and ecology and climate change and how dune talks about those things anyway that's enough of me
1: what about tim marchman hi tim marchman
2: hi i'm so glad to be here nice
1: should we play the uh the dune music let's play it okay wow (laughs)
0: this is the eno dune (laughs) green snippet
1: it's the official Motherboard Does Dune theme music. So, we don't pass Based, anything. Man. Yeah. Based okay. on an uh, extensive search of, like, five minutes for Dune music.
0: <laughs> Best synth Dune take. Um, Yeah. So... Uh, I think we can just get into it. Um, Dune did pretty well at the box office. Uh, it got like 40 million intake. People were wondering if anyone would show up to the theaters, and they did show up. Although that that number wouldn't be that big compared to like pre pandemic blockbuster numbers. So uh, it's another data point in the streaming versus you know theater going. Uh, Conversation and it is in the world. People generally like it. Uh, it seems, anyways, judging by Twitter feeds and Rotten Tomatoes, two notoriously uh, infallible <laughs> indicators of taste and quality. Uh, did you, did everyone, has everyone seen the movie, first of all? Did everyone see Dune? Yes. Yes. I have seen it. Me too. I, I
3: saw it, smashed <laughs> it.
0: There. What did you, thoughts?
3: I liked it. I mean, it's kind of, it's hubris to even attempt a movie adaptation of this book. Like, many great men have tried and failed, as we know. But honestly, I think it's as good of a Dune movie as we'll probably ever get. I found it be visually beautiful, relatively faithful to the book. Pretty tedious at times, which is also relatively faithful to the book.
2: Mm-hmm. And like,
3: you know... There's so much information that needs to be conveyed in such a short amount of time that, like, it's not easy. And like David Lynch, bless his heart, just like chose to do like a up top 15 minute exposition explanation of the entire world, which you know is one way to do it. And I appreciate the economy, I guess, with which this film tackles some of these things. I mean, it skips a lot of key points, like the Butlerian Jihad, for example, which I'm sure we can talk about. But uh, yeah, I, I yeah I liked it. I mean, I didn't love it. It didn't take me away, but I liked it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think that like the uh, that is like when people say that Dune is quote unquote unfilmable, like that's pretty much what they're talking about. There's a lot of exposition to get through. It's like a lot. It's more than just about anything else because there are you know detailed religious orders and like feudal space houses that are all sort of in coexistence. And there's you know mythologies of chosen one. And in the book, he uses this you know like that. It's like like a past sort of uh, telling in, in that it's like being like, you get snippets of the history book where he just kind of like lays it out. So he gets to cheat. Um, And yeah, I thought the same as you, Claire. I I also wasn't honestly floored the first time I saw it. It was, I thought it was pretty, a pretty solid swing. Um, (sighs) And I, I, and I, yeah, I, I like my, you know, my, my wife loves it. Like it I was so surprised and Jason who hadn't read, the book either uh loved it so a lot of people were worried like oh are people who've never seen read the book gonna gonna get it and i think like they're maybe responding to it even even more so than than the diehards um which i guess brings us to jacob you saw it how did you see the movie and uh what were your thoughts
4: uh i i saw the movie i saw it in uh a uh home theater setup um so it was maybe not quite as loud as some people have said that it is, but it was still um, pretty fucking loud. Um, and uh, and in large enough picture and high enough fidelity that I feel like I pretty much got the uh, cinema going uh, experience. Um, I'm also in a, very like low vaccine zone of rural Virginia at the moment. So I wasn't really ready to go into my local multiplex in the way that I might have if I had been um, at home in Pittsburgh. Um, So anyway, with that long preamble, um, I don't know. I thought uh, in the words of uh, uh, cartoon critic, Jay Sherman, it stinks. Um, (laughs) I, I, uh, I, I am a huge um dunehead I've probably read every one of the Frank Herbert books. I don't read that Brian Herbert trash, but the Frank Herbert books like at like 50 times each from the time that I was a teenager so I, I love this world and this universe for all of its weird problems um, and I, I there was almost nothing about the movie that I liked I I I disliked almost every choice from the color palette to the sound mixing to the Um, excisions of the weirdest but funnest dialogue in the book um, uh, to the uh, moment at which it chose to end its telling of people keep saying the first half but actually maybe the first third of the story so um I, I'm happy to go into detail about all of those things, but I am I am I'm a hater, an uh, unrepentant I'm, I'm hater of this Dune.
1: <laughs> Let it flow through you. I'm, I love it.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Tim, maybe the
0: mo- the, the the noted d- also book lover, and all, you like the <laughs> film, right, Tim?
2: Oh yeah, I, I think I liked it more than anyone here, um, with the possible exception, Jason. I yeah, I I really dug it i thought the way the ways it put a lot of stuff Was at the margins of the book because it's so inward focused um you know it really paired well for me with the book i regretted a lot of what was lost and i don't think jacob's wrong about much of any of it but what was there i think they did a ton with and set it up for what will after this box office response hopefully be like a dozen sequels all paced exactly like this ready to be watched one after the other (laughs) yeah
0: now Um, if I if we could return to you for one sec Jacob what's your favorite Dune book is it the original is
4: uh, yeah I like I mean I like like Dune and Dune Messiah probably equally Um, and Dune Messiah is the most interesting book of the series the shortest and the most interesting one because it's the one that um, completely and uh, and and uh, it fascinatingly makes good on, on sort of this subtle promise of the first book, which is to um, get you to believe that this guy is a giant hero and then show you that he's actually like the most terrible being who's ever lived in the history of the universe. Um, ha- if only George Lucas had understood what was going on in those two books, he might've actually been able to uh, tell the story of Anakin Skywalker. I- I've always <laughs> thought. Um, I- and then um, Ch- children of Dune is really talky and boring um, uh heretics, uh, god emperor is is kind of talky and and boring. Heretics and chapter house then are a complete departure. He takes the universe in a totally different direction um, which I actually love, even though it's they're by far the most um tr- troubled of the of the novels. so i I guess that's my 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 sort of ranking the, the first two and then the last two. And then the middle ones at the bottom.
0: Interesting, Tim. What do you what do you think? What are your What are your faves?
2: Uh definitely the definitely the first one. And uh, you know, I as far as rereadings go, uh, I've usually just stuck with the first four. Everything after that kind of comes into like weird late peak period of a band where they're just noodling for seventeen minutes on side <laughs> three of a double LP, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if I want to get this deep. <laughs> I admire the fortitude and resolve of, of the completionists. Have you read uh, beyond? Please the don't book? put
3: me on the spot and force me to reveal that I've only read the first one.
0: Oh, it's fair. <laughs> I, I feel like it's fair. I said in the first stream that we did that when I was like the first time I was going through the books, I started reading Dune Messiah, and I was so mad. Like I was exactly what Jacob was talking about. I was just like. I was, like, the 12-year-old, like, reading this for the first time, going, like, no, I don't, like, I don't want to see this happen to my hero. If I stop reading, it's not real, and I close the book, like, and I gave it up for years and years. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that the the movie does lot like somewhat faithfully and at least it sort of like conjures into being I I thought at least this the world that like the enormity and the strangeness of this world like you may not agree with all the choices but I did appreciate how like once it gets going you do get a pretty good sense that there's this like generational hundreds of years sort of occupation, it's changed hands, it's being driven by this weird feudal space uh, uh, emperor, and you you sort of get the politics, you get the weirdness, they all have kind of at least, it's gestured at their weird rituals and ceremony, Um, and you get the Bene Gesserit a little bit, so I I, I at least, I mean, maybe like the bar has been lowered after like decades of Marvel movies, but like... (laughs) I get, I, I, like, every time there's something like that, that people respond to, that's like a little ember, like, flickers of hope that, like, some IP that hasn't, like, just been beaten to death, you know, on the big screen is getting a response. Um, I think there are interesting things it does, right? Like, he's not Luke Skywalker, you're not rooting for him. Like, maybe he is priming the pump for Dune Messiah if he gets to make that, and it does, like, curdle in a big way. You're not rooting for him? though?
1: I'm. I'm definitely rooting for him thus far. Like in the movie, he, at least. I I don't I think, think he, that Paul has done anything bad yet. Like, uh, you know, he he said. I didn't his, kill that guy. Didn't kill the guy. He killed the guy, he he killed does the guy also, a, but the guy tried to kill him first. Oh, the guy that was okay? asking for it. Yeah. Right. It was a it was he a did. fight to the death. You know.
0: Yeah, and he, I think he Timothy Chalamet plays him well. He does kind of have like cell vibes to him, you know, like this entitlement and this broodingness, and he's like this good-looking movie star that that like that that, that people naturally want to to root for. So I think I don't think really that Denis Villeneuve does much interesting beyond that, beyond just, like, plopping him there. And, like, he says that, no, no, it's not a white savior narrative. I'm critiquing it. And it's kind of like, well, how, other than, like, having him scowl a lot. But I do think that at least it starts it off interesting. Do you okay. do, do, do you agree with any of that, Nicobarie, Claire?
3: I mean, I, I will say that the screening I went to, I was sitting next to a pod of teenage girls who would scream and take photos of the screen whenever Timothy Chalamet <laughs> was on screen. And then like leave and come back a bunch of times. So I think people are rooting for him. Maybe not for the same reasons.
1: <laughs>
4: that, I mean, yeah. I, I to me, uh, I I feel like um, uh, I, I don't know. Never send a twink to do a twunks job because <laughs> I feel like I feel like. Uh, Timothée was um, was miscast in this role. I feel like a lot of people were miscast in their roles in this movie. Actually, I think that I think Villeneuve has has actually never really been a great um, actor's director. Anyway, um, he's occasionally gotten good performances, like in some of his other shitty movies, like Sicario. Brolin is actually really good in Sicario because he he understands how to um, play a villainous character with a smirk. But here, it's it's kind of like a little bit leaden. And he doesn't have the smirk, um, so so his character I think doesn't doesn't work quite as well. But but um, t- Timothy is like fine when he um, is in dialogue in scenes with other people. Like I thought that he was pretty good, like in the scene with the Reverend Mother in the beginning and the in the Ghamjavar scene. Um, even though I thought that scene was at the wrong the wrong place in the movie, but mm-hmm. I thought that he was good and he he played off of the um off of the, the reverend mother um quite well um but i think that when he like is individually like in frame or carrying a scene especially in some of the like prophecy moments um i just don't believe it like i'm just like are you just It it's all reads like him just playing the same lovesick character that he played in call me by your name rather than like the um heir of a space empire uh so i get a little
1: uh, bit of like actor. uh harry potter with his like um you know his dream sequences and prophecies as well like i i felt like i was kind of watching daniel radcliffe do that um although i don't know i i, I have no idea if um harry potter kind of stole this idea from dune or if it's just such a normal trope like the the chosen one can see the future and and change it or, or see, you know, see other places in time. Um, but that's kind of the lens through which I saw this movie, because I, I, I said Friday, like I haven't read the book. And so I was watching and I was like, oh, this is like Tatooine and this is Luke Skywalker and he's kind of like Harry Potter and he's kind of like all these other things. And then it's like, oh, yeah, well, they're all either stealing it from Dune or they're just like tropes that are are so ingrained in science fiction at this point that it's not. I watch it through the lens of, I've seen this all before, but I yeah. thought it was, I still really liked it because I liked the world and I liked the sound and, and all that sort of thing. But I had no love for or knowledge of the source material. So it, it kind of like I was watching it through that lens, I guess.
2: Well, one big distinction between what's on the screen and all of what you just named uh, is is the villain, which I thought was by far the biggest weakness Um, I, you know, I don't know if, if I'm rooting for Paul in the movie because I don't even know what he's up against. You know, we get like three scenes of, uh, Stellan Skarsgård in some kind of like black soup. He's definitely portrayed to be somewhat villainous. He floats around with some sort of, uh, like repulsive rays beneath his nightgown. It's, it's all pretty ridiculous. And, Baron Harkonnen is one of my favorite villains in science fiction because, it, like, the Hammy, like, it's just so far far beyond Hammy. I think he has one of the great introductory lines in literature. He, he, he goes, like, is it not a magnificent thing that I, the, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, do? Ha, 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 ha. While he's plotting with all his minions. And we don't really get any of this joy of performance that I think you get in the book. And there's nothing really in its place. You just know Paul is basically against him, like, faceless space bad guys who want to make money and they have a big army they have like these orcs on another planet that they're buying in some vague way and it's not even that the politics doesn't come through it's that there's you know there's no darth vader there's no voldemort and you know the source material absolutely has that it goes in very weird directions with it but it has you know a totally over-the-top villain that an actor could really sink his teeth into um so you know i thought that was definitely something that was missing
4: yeah. Hey. Um, the so you can't. I, I completely agree. Baron, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen is like is one of the great villainous uh, creations. Um, I mean, he's partly a product of Frank Herbert's own psychoses. Herbert was a famously homophobic man who disowned his own um, gay son and has really weird, horrible ideas about sex in general, which kind of comes through even in the first Dune. Um, and so of course the baron in the books um, by contemporary standards is uh highly problematic he's like uh he's like a lisping queenie gay pedophile Th- those are all the ways that you know how how bad he is even more than like the the violence and the actual terrible things that he does but um, in the early 2000s the sci-fi channel did a, a really <laughs> bad um uh, dune miniseries um and but they they made one brilliant move which was they cast Ian mcneese as the baron and he played him a- absolutely in just the the like hammiest touring Broadway villain way possible <laughs> and it was it was completely marvelous and um he just loved being evil and he actually ended many of his lines of dialogue in rhyming couplets for some reason (laughs) it was a strange (laughs) decision this screenwriters made so i i i missed that both that type of like hammy portrayal of the baron as just like a person who who just loves being evil um and uh and i i missed uh that that bit of levity in what is otherwise, I mean, the book too, completely a humorless text, right? No. So ha- having this one kind of over-the-top, um, kind of queeny, bitchy character as your main villain um, is a, a nice bit of tonal relief, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think that's one of the things. Like Lynch's film was all like was also problematic, right? But the Baron at least was like like totally insane, and I mean, he actually he probably amplified Herbert's sort of indicators. He's just this like yeah pedophilic, just like just oozing like at the mouth over the over his, over Fade Rautha and he has like the heart plugs that he pulls out. So at least it was like something. I do think oh, that I, I agree with you, Tim. That that on second viewing. That fared the worst. They introduced the Baron, and he's literally just sitting there, sort of like rubbing his face, like Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. It's like we <laughs> get it. It's the heart of darkness. That's all, and that's all he could come up with. We'll just do that again. Um, and I do, and I, I, this is a, a, a one way to segue, I guess, because I don't spend much time with him, but he's like literally bathing in oil. The his home world is just industrial and 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 black, and there are pools of oil and black like creature robot creatures or spiders that have been bred by as as i as we learned last stream that that was an actual person that's been sort of the product of weird torture eugenics um but it is alliance on signifiers is what i'm getting at here to show the evil like we're, we're like we just have like flashes in the scene like he's he's all about oil like all of the stuff ecological stuff like dune was very very sort of straightforwardly you know the spice was was oil in the original series like it was i mean the whole it's set in this sort of stand-in for the middle east for this commodity that's so important to you know dune just blows all these things up in the world it was to the global economy in dune though the spice is necessary for like the galactic or universes economy making travel possible um so I wanted to talk a little bit about what is going on there, um, you know, from 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 the source material. Uh, can you, Claire, talk a little bit about sort of what Frank Herbert was doing um, when he was thinking of the spice and making it sort of controlled by these warring houses and so central to the economy?
3: Yeah, well, you know, what's funny is like on my initial reading of June years ago, I always thought that the fact that like the the global commodity that was clearly a standard for oil... The fact that it was also a psychedelic drug was this kind of counterintuitive and interesting thing. Like, you know, like, just dose the Harkonnen, right? Like, at some point, they'll just see that everything is connected and, like, kind of vibe with the Fremen and let everything slide and be (laughs) chill and peaceful. Like, it never really made sense to me. But then I think now, looking at it now and rereading now watching the film and, like, thinking about what has happened with cannabis, for example, in the last 10 years, like... It totally makes sense because even these substances, which are supposed to be like equalizing on some level and supposed to change our perspectives on the natural world and on one another and on our relationships with one another, even these substances can be like you know honed into these highly lucrative market commodities. In fact, I somewhat tangential, but I had drinks the other day with a friend of mine who's like looking closely at the psilocybin space. He was telling me that like the price of sterilized grain is spiking because of the imminent legalization of psilocybin so like because mushrooms are cultivated on these substrates of sterilized grains so basically like even psychedelics like can't save us from our like ourselves like from our lecherous capitalistic extractive relationship with the, the world I, I mean I think the fact that it's oil and drugs is really interesting and touches like a couple of different places simultaneously
0: yeah and you, we were talking a little while ago about how sort of Frank Herbert was, there's a couple layers to this. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the, the, the historian Daniel Immerwar, I think is his name, has a great presentation on Dune and Empire and kind of feel like does a pretty good job of, of showing what, what Frank Herbert was kind of up to in, in constructing a lot of this stuff. But with the ecology, there's a couple layers and, and one of it was his sort of affinity and maybe it was this sort of unhealthy fetishistic sort of Uh, relationship with his local indigenous tribe but he was actually very very close with them and and kind of took a lot of the the messages that that they were um you know communicating to him and beaming them into dune and and one of those that that immerwar points out is the one where he in fact we're actually going to have him on the show i think on thursday so just uh, just noting that but that one of the tribal leaders was talking about how this place in Washington where Herbert lived was getting sort of eroded and sort of degraded by the encroachment of civilization there. And he had like a direct quote where it was like, eventually this place will be nothing but a desert. And a lot of people think that that is one part of what, you know, was in the backstory of Dune. We learned that Arrakis was once, you know, vital. And Claire, you were telling me a story about, um, sand dunes in Oregon or something.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the lore of Dune is that like Frank Herbert, when he was the investigative journalist, went to Florence, Oregon, which is when I mean, I'm from Oregon, it's a part of the state that is completely covered in sand dunes. It's very surreal. But He was writing about uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture effort to essentially stabilize the expansion of those dunes using these European, these non-indigenous beach grasses, because the sand was like literally consuming this town and it was spreading and it was get, sort of be- getting beyond human control is almost like a living thing. And I think that that sense of the encroaching sands, the power of nature, the futile efforts to kind of like, you know, use non-Indigenous plantings to, to stave off that encroachment, all of that thing sort of, um, it, you know, I think goes, goes into the lore of Dune and inspired Dune. I mean, allegedly he wrote an article that was never published called They Stop the Moving Sands, um, which i don't know if like that's available to find somewhere if it's like in this paper or somewhere, but um that was ostensibly the foundation for the books so yeah
0: yeah uh, jacob and as a re- as a as a novelist how do you how do you read these themes and like how did you originally or continue to read sort of the the themes of of, of ecology and like the centrality of oil to to unlocking dune
4: yeah as uh um it's uh it's interesting because um, I uh, I think that the the ecological um, the ecological component of the book is sometimes a little bit overlooked because I think that what Herbert uh, I, I think that people read the allegory the oil allegory pretty pretty neatly and I think that maps like pretty pretty well um, for most readers of the book but some of its some of the the ecological things that it talks about, particularly again, this like the movie doesn't really get to this because a lot of it really happens after Paul and Jessica fall in um, with the Fremen and begin to see in more detail than they only glimpsed in the first half of the book. Like what the Fremen, like the, what they're actually doing in terms of planetary ecology, their their sort of plan for effectively terraforming this planet um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and it, it's interesting because... Within the context of science fiction, like when I first encountered this book, I was reading kind of all, like I was a young teenager, reading all of the classics of like golden age sci-fi. So, you know, reading like Heinlein and reading um, Asimov, um, and uh, Friedrich Poole, and all, all of those guys. And one of the things that you notice in a lot of those books is that, like, everybody zips from planet to planet, and the planets are all, like, Star Wars planets, right? Like, one is a desert planet, and one is a forest planet, but none of none of that is ever really explored. And I, I forget where I read this, but I, I read an article about um, about Herbert Dune, and it said it was the first time in science fiction that you ever got a sense of how big a planet is. Mm. Um, and I... I think that that's actually one of the triumphs of the book is the way that it actually makes you feel the size and weight and complexity of this world, even though he delib- goes out of his way to like make it effect a single biome, right? Like the world is described as not actually that ecologically complex because it is a global desert. But even within that like sort of singular world spanning biome, um, he creates such interesting sort of diversity and subtlety and nuance um, in a way that makes you reflect on our on your own planet and your own environment in a way that I think few other books, certainly few other books before the last maybe 20 or 30 years in, in science fiction um, ever did. Um, for me, that was really affecting when I first read it as a as a kid and continues to be in some ways, I think, the most interesting uh, part of what Herbert did in this project. Um, it gets lost in the later books as they become more concerned with politics.
0: How how did it affect you, if we can just if I might ask. Did it in like a in, in terms of raising an environmental awareness more generally or
4: yeah I, I think so. I mean I I my family's from Pittsburgh, but I grew up in the mountains mostly in western Pennsylvania, like in kind of in the Appalachians and small towns. And so you know my friends and I spent a lot of time in the woods and in the mountains, just hiking around because there was nothing else to do in a small town. So I always kind of, ha- you know, felt uh, an affinity for for the natural world a little bit. But I was also, you know, a nerdy indoor kid who liked to read. And I think that Dune was one of those one of those books that made me, um, uh, yeah, awaken to sort of environmental awareness um, beyond simply like liking to go into the woods beyond my home, but actually thinking about the sort of um in, interconnectedness uh of the natural world around us and then of the impact of human activity um of human activity on that world um like to start thinking for the first time about like actually the strangeness of all of the um human roads with giant curdling machines that went through all the woods and the mountains and and cars constantly running over deer like thinking about what a what a strange thing that actually is whereas prior to that you know that was just like what there were roads in the woods you didn't really think about that as an actual natural interaction between humans as a biological organism who are changing their environment and the environment that they're changing you
3: know
0: how intentional oh yeah go ahead claire please
3: Uh, i totally agree and i think like the greatest lesson of dune the book and like hopefully the film is Uh, even the most seemingly hostile environments can be a place can be places where life flourishes so long as we're able to negotiate our our existence within those places like through relationships of mutual reciprocity which you know of course and i hope i'm not overstepping here like is the indigenous view of reality like the fremen are in this state of right relation with their planet they don't take more than they need they cultivate like these deep-rooted plants they they move with the flow of nature rather than against it and like I think that like the extractive relationship that the Harkonnens have and and House Atreides has too by virtue of their participation in the entire colonial spice mining enterprise is like it's not just that it's unsustainable it's like that it actually blinds them to the true nature of the planet that they're on right like they literally can't even see the Fremen they're undercounting the Fremen by by the millions because they're like blind to the the place and they and they come to it like they're coming to war and they think the planet is hostile, but it's them that's making the planet hostile, you know, like they have no humility. And like, meanwhile, if you know the rhythms of the planet, if you kind of walk lightly on the sand, if you know the ways of the desert, like it's life itself, it's life giving, you get to ride the sandworms, which I think is a really powerful lesson and something we could all really take with us. Another thing I want to say is I've been thinking about Dune this, just this morning in relationship to Ursula Le Guin's The Word for the World is Forest, or The Word for World is Forest, which is another book about, like an extractive capitalistic project that comes up against these indigenous alien lifeways and specifically lifeways that have profound relationship to dreaming. I, I think they're like two flip sides of the same coin in a way. I mean, I know it's like substitute the infinite sands for the infinite forests. And, you know, obviously like Le Guin is 10 years later or something. And, but I think it gets at a lot of the same questions and maybe a little bit more of an, e- more economically and maybe with a little bit more sensitivity in, in some ways. And, without all the weird eugenics. i am been trying to figure out if Frank Herbert and Ursula Le Guin knew each other. They must have. I mean, they both lived in Oregon and I'm sure they went to the same conventions, but I would love to be a fly on the wall for those conversations that they had them.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, could, am- I could imagine those being a little bit awkward. <laughs> 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 Given... <laughs> uh given given frank's like raw or, like hate, hatred of anything that reeks of um uh gender non essentialism yeah um I, uh, claire you're i I was um it, it's funny because in the in the subsequent two books, so in Dune Messiah and then in children of dune, one of the actual kind of um, way, ways that you begin to see um Paul and his heirs in a more negative light and one of the um kind of critical um points of of political contention is the fact that the ecological transformation of Dune proceeds too quickly oh. so what well, after after Paul wins and basically becomes the emperor and then eventually his um his sister and then his his children kind of become his his heirs after he Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live Um, seemingly uh, dies, um, the the Atreides <laughs> devote a great deal of imperial power to, in effect, accelerating the terraforming of Dune, which the Fremen have, in, as you learned in the first book, have conceived of as not just like a multi-generational project, but as like a, like a hundred-generational project yeah. you know, to slowly transform this planet. Um, and even at, at one point, it's like in it's implied that it's proceeding so quickly that the worms themselves are dying because the planet is becoming too wet too quickly and and thereby reducing the power of the Fremen because it reduces the availability of, of the spice. So it, it's very interesting to see how that happens in the subsequent books and how, how Herbert um, conceived of even the changing of the timeline of the Fremen's own sort of indigenous project to transform the planet as being problematical, Mm. which always makes me think of some of the things that you read about the sort of the deliberate transformation of like the North American landscape by the indigenous peoples of North America, which was quite extensive, much more extensive than until like, uh, you know, a couple decades ago we were ever led to believe the idea was like, they just lived in this pristine forest and didn't do anything to it, which almost couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. Um, but how their activities occurred along just a, an entirely different time frame from the, um, capitalistic extraction um style of uh, environmental engineering that the Europeans brought with them you know field, field clearing and intensive agriculture and so forth um and i, I think dune uh, has a similar um a similar uh, critique of that uh, that type of thinking and that that shortened time frame of thinking about ecological um decisions and impacts
3: yeah, that's really interesting. I, and I feel like the play of time and the scale of Dune is a big part of what makes it as epic as it is. And the fact that, yeah, the Fremen are operating along this really massive time frame, but also the Bene Gesserit are thinking about things in terms of centuries and generations. Um, I don't know what that says about like, I don't know, the accelerative nature of technology and, and how quickly things develop. But um, yeah, everything is okay as long as you do it really slowly, maybe.
0: Hey. I'm, I'm curious to what you think about it because I actually think to, uh, the new Dune's credit, some of this isn't, I mean, he, I, he doesn't follow through. And I, a lot of the commentary from folks who have been even Dune defenders is that he doesn't foreground, like given this opportunity, given that we're in the middle of a climate crisis right now, and then it is at the sort of, uh, at the foreground of basically everything we're doing, he doesn't take the opportunity, um, Uh, Villeneuve doesn't take the opportunity to kind of really make that a central point but I do think that you know there are some of the things that come across uh, even if we see the Harkonnens as this intensely extractive and ruthless sort of uh, the most destructive sort of embodiment of unfettered capitalism then the atreides come along and they're the heroes and it, we do get the context at least that like well you how are you different what are you doing the same and he kind of refuses yeah. to meaningfully change his policy he's like well we got to go out in the desert the emperor told us to be here we got to go get the spice we're going to do that we won't go underground though uh which you know is just kind of a half measure that anyone would throw and the policy continues apace so you do get the sense that there are these long existing sort of rapacious mechanisms that are just plowing over this planet and that people have, uh, you know, the Fremen have been, I mean, it's the open, this movie opens with, you know, that monologue from Zendaya that's, you know, we've been oppressed for years. Who will our new oppressors be? Um, So do you think the new Dune gets any credit for portraying sort of those forces of extraction and oppression in those blunt terms as Fisted or
2: as brief or as gestury as they are, I think it's a I think it's a weird thing because one of the real strengths of the one of the real strengths of the book is that it was very prescient. Like it's easy to think of it because it has these themes of ecology um, as being tied up, you know, with the hippie movement. It was very popular uh, among hippies. It was kind of like a, a standby, like the Whole Earth Catalog. Or something. And it also, you know, I think it's also associated in a lot of ways with um, the oil shock and with the initial embargo. It's, it's kind of a book of that time. But it came out 10, like 10 years. He was writing it 10 years before that, at, at least. And like the initial publication of Parts of Dune is 1965. So he's hit on these things that would be very um, central to the politics of the early 70s ahead of time which gives it this this kind of power. And a lot of readings of the book, I think, have been moored in those two things. The movie can't – I don't know that the re- movie really can work in the same way because it's inherently a lot more crudely allegorical. You know, in the, like in the book, OPEC plays a huge role. It's chome at oh. a time when, you know, it probably wasn't on the lips of, of everyone in the suburbs. And the mid-60s are almost this innocent age where people are – motoring across the fresh new highways and not even really thinking about how the how the gas gets there they just or or what the price of price of that is or or what the cost of it is and so there's you know so there's this tension between what's going on in the book and what's happening in the real world in the context in which it's read that i really can't see working here you know villanova is making it this um you know this this vision of uh, you know, what, what will happen to our planet if we continue down the path we're on, you know, I, I don't know if that even works. Um, so yeah, in some ways I'm glad that he avoided that because we're all going to read that into it. And on the other hand, part of me thinks like he just couldn't really be bothered and wanted to build big city size, uh, transports for armies. (laughs)
0: yeah he also he also a criticism is that he kind of did remove the another interesting thing about the the book is that is that chome that you mentioned and that there's like a trade group and that it kind of is explicitly uh made clear that like that these sort of the capitalist interests are sort of even above the emperor like he kind of has to listen to the guild and the demands of the like there's there are many different layers of, of agency that the different but but even the feudal lords are kind of un you know succumbing to to those dictates uh, d- those dictates and uh and they're kind of helpless before them so he kind of gets that whole thing out of the picture so there isn't really any corporate uh involvement it's just kind of right these warring houses so i think that's another another weakness in any potential metaphor making
3: i also want to that's say war- i think like oh <laughs>
4: <laughs> I was just going to say that is one thing I'm I'm not like one of these people who's like a Lynch Dune revisionist who's going to try to convince anyone that it's a good movie because it's a bad movie although an interesting bad movie um, but one thing that he he does I think very well um, uh, even though he departs from the book in the way that he does it is depict the Spacing and Guild and the Benet Gesserit and their relationship to the Emperor for example as being like much more um, complex um, at which is closer to the way that the book portrays it. like the, the emperor is himself being hemmed in by political um, obligations. We don't really meet the Emperor um in the Villeneuve dune except via his um his couple of servants. And so as a consequence, we don't we don't really get to see that that level of political complexity. so if if a second one is made, it would be interesting to see if Villeneuve even tries to, um address that or or if he just kind of leaves it on the cutting room floor
0: yeah i do really yeah. like that opening the opening lynch scene where it's like the weird guild like it's just this like mutation of like feudal capitalism in space it was it's just a cool scene but all right claire go
3: ahead oh i just what i was gonna say like i mean one thing that i think was a missed opportunity in terms of portraying how how Atreides is different from the harkonnen but also kind of the same in the sense that they're also just the new oppressors that are coming along is the fact that as Atreides in the book are like really proud of their propaganda machine. Like they're, Mm. they are really, Duke Leto is like really concerned with disseminating like all this positive information about himself to the, the, the people of the planet and, and sort of like lettering the whole planet with, with propaganda. And And he's using social media
2: influencers to do it very directly. Yeah,
3: totally. Yeah, totally. That's very prescient as well. And I think that form of sort of yeah media driven information driven soft power is a big part of the story, and I think is relevant to our particular moment for sure.
1: I think just like watching this movie, and I mean it's been four days since I've seen it, and I need to watch it again. But I just felt like it was more a vibe, like a an like a world building piece, and I I don't think that it had like that much to say. Um, And I, I have started I've started listening to the audiobook of dune since then i'm through four chapters and it's obviously just like a much deeper world than um you know the movie gets into which which i have very low bar a very low bar for movies so it's like yeah i really like dune i really liked the environment and the and sort of the world building and the sound and i thought that it had a better plot than blade runner 2049 which i really didn't like very much like i I thought that blade runner had the sound and the environment and world building, but I thought it was like extremely boring. Whereas this, I was like, oh, there's like some stuff happening. It was, it was pretty slow, but I, I mean, I thought that it was just like, there were interesting like plot points to, to follow, which is not the most uh, advanced movie analysis of all time. But I guess what I'm saying is like, in terms of what it had to say about climate change or like resource extraction or race and like it, it just didn't seem to have much to say about anything other than sort of like acknowledging that they're there. It's like yes, the Fremen are people of color and and sort of on Friday Brian, you made the astute point that seemingly the only um requirement for a fremen was like you are just like not white like some sort of not white. it was just like a mix of people of color um and it's like, it's a dry planet and you don't really learn sort of like why it's dry, but you learn that like water is really important. And um, you know, there's all this talk about why water is important, but we don't learn how it got that way. We don't really learn like who is doing the oppressing and why it's more just like a vibe that that's kind of like what I took away from it. It's like, Oh yeah. Like it's a dystopian world and we're going to exist in this world. But I didn't, I didn't think it had like that much to say in terms of like, relating it back to to the real world and and just even from the first four chapters of dune that that I've listened to so far I'm like oh there's like a lot like this is a lot deeper than the movie which is understandable
0: <laughs> yeah and I do think to, to to tim's point there all those things that like helped kind of I, I you know what, what we're doing in these conversations is kind of mapping out how it became like dune became you know, kind of what a lot of these other things are taking their, um, like culture products are taking their DNA and their in- ingredients from, and the fact that do that Herbert was able to kind of, or at least seem like he was predicting the sort of the crisis in in, in the Middle East and 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 OPEC and and that huge political fallout. Um, in the seventies, like I think did sort of further entrench, like the centrality of Dune as like a, I mean, and and I think it also pairs with uh, what Jacob was talking about earlier about what a world, you know, what you really feel like you're in this full world uh, the, in a way I did too, when I read it for the first time, it's probably what got me into science fiction. It like really powerfully kind of envelops you in this world. And this world is sort of based In the politics of sort of, you know, oil scarcity and and sort of it it does a lot of problematic things, but it did sort of pull out this really interesting and dynamic sort of slab that then like George Lucas and others could go like, oh, well, what if I made this a Western and it was only like an hour and a half long and, you know, and then was able to sort of export it. And I do think it's interesting seeing these conversations about, well, it seemed like star Wars. It seemed like that. Like I, I that was my thought in the movie theater. Like she's like, Oh, do the voice. And I'm like, that just seemed, people are just going to say that's a ripoff of the force, even though, you know, it was kind of, it's become this sort of meta textual thing. Um, do we think that like this, you know, that this, Uh, will show up more in the second movie should it come or are we just going to be be vibing out is it kind of an empty cipher of what the original sort of text uh imparted unto us
3: i kind of agree that it's all vibes but maybe we just live in a vibe era i don't know i mean i think the next movie will probably be all vibes plus like epic battles in the style of like lord of the rings or something it's just going to be it's just going to be more of that with a bit more you know, guys fighting other guys. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I my my relationship to Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I I actually really liked Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I saw it like three times in theaters, but only because it sort of reminded me of this ride they used to have at Disneyland called Soaring California, where you're just basically like sitting on this little like chair that floats above these epic landscapes of California, while like spritzy smells of tangerines and beach surfer blasted at you, and it's just like you're literally just floating through this realm of vibes that are somewhat familiar that's how i felt about Blade Runner 2049 had all these sort of soaring shots and i feel that way about dune too you're just kind of floating through it uh and immersed in it but that's sort of like i don't know that's i don't know why but that's like what people seem to want and seem to connect to in this day and age
1: should we should we compare it to mad max because it's just it's so like the world is so similar to mad max and i i felt like mad max fury road did have a lot to say and i'm maybe that's because it was so singularly focused on like water wars and sort of like resource extraction whereas dune is seemingly about like a lot of things at once and i wonder if it's because dune is trying i mean I don't know if you can fault the film for this. It's obviously based on a book that is about a lot of things, whereas Mad Max is kind of singularly about this, you know, post water world essentially. But it's like Dune is trying to be about so many different things at once. Whereas Mad Max Fury Road is about this singular focus. And I I feel like Mad Max really did have a lot to say about like climate change and drought and, what we're doing to planet earth. Whereas Dune is just like, here's a world and, and you're in it.
4: Mad Max had among other things, a really compelling portrayal of a villain, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, and a hammy fun villain, not to like harp too much on this point that I keep making, but, um, and, an, an, an over the top, um, uh, hammy villain who as terrifying as parts of the portrayal was there were also some very funny things about, about that portrayal um and 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 then that kind of cast the pursuit aspects of that movie um it, it made them even more propulsive than they than they already were um also that movie has much better cinematography in my opinion uh than, than this dune um but I don't know I felt like Mad Max Fury road which was a a movie that I did like um, also had a lot of vibes. <laughs> I mean, I do think that it, I do think it had something to say about the destruction of the natural world and about the extractive economy. Um, but I also think, I guess maybe I'll praise Villeneuve here. I also think Mad Max, like, um, fetishized, you know, it's cars and it's sets in a way that maybe Villeneuve didn't like they, as, as well designed as everything was in Mad Max um it wasn't necessarily as like it didn't feel like quite as lived in maybe as uh as the Villeneuve production design did so i I guess I'll praise him for that like Villeneuve there's a really great scene when they're first flying into the into um into the city um where you're getting the sort of helicopter shot of the palace um and if you pay close attention you will notice that like there are piles of sand in all of the nooks and crannies. It's very thoughtful and it's very subtly done. Like nothing, the camera doesn't move or draw your attention to it, it's just there. Um, And I really liked stuff like that. Whereas there was more of an element of like stagey theatricality to Mad Max. That's not necessarily a criticism because I liked that element of Mad Max, but it is a difference, I think, between the two films. Ah, we got something you liked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We we dredged it up with the spice.
4: i'm just calling balls and strikes
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i do think maybe there's like a slate pitch to be had in like the dull sort of portrayal of the villain where like literally his last scene where he has like speaking lines he's like he just like emerges from the tub and he's like "Mm, good uh release the spice but uh keep the price low, uh, we don't want to uh, let it rise, or we don't want the price to fall, uh, that's it. Like, it was just, like, this basic, sort of, like, very, like, Econ 101 kind of, like, imparting of an order, like, that That was all, that's all he does, is basically, like, he's, like, he's, like, a middle manager at a, at a like, at, <laughs> a, at, a, at a marketing firm or something, just, like, he just has, like, this, like, oh, just do that, and he just, like, goes back beneath his oil, so maybe there's, like, Maybe there's a slate pitch in there where it's like the dullness of like of, of the man- uh,
1: mundanity soul. of evil, right?
0: Right. Just just boring, big, boring, fat guy. Um, there's like
3: such an emphasis on like pomp and circumstance and ceremony and and like the, the the intensely vast hierarchy of regiments and the battalions and all these servants and the mentats. And at at a certain point, like you get to the middle where the leader is, and it's just like it doesn't even have to be anything. It's like this empty core. It's really about like. The actual bureaucracy that is so planetary scale, intergalactic scale at the person that like, do they even have to be charismatic? Do they even have to be present? I think they just sort of like, because like the Duke Atreides is kind of like, I mean, he's supposed to be a good man, but he's just sort of like a rough template of like a good dude, you know, sort of moral, sort of loves his son, but it's a pretty like loosely sketched character in the film, at least in the same way. They're kind of, they're both sides of the same coin. It's just blank, good and evil kind of.
0: I know the same in the book, actually, I think. I don't know.
3: It, it, yeah, and
4: you, you only get... the Villeneuve only permits a few um, little um, visual notes of it, and if you haven't read the book, you won't know why the fuck they're there, but he does show, like, the bull's head yeah. and the little sculpture of the Toreador um, in the book. Of, and, and there's a throwaway line of dialogue between um, between uh, Paul and Leto about, oh, grand, my grandfather died fighting bulls. Um, in the in the book, um, a little bit more is made of that. And I think it's actually one of the funny things that that punctures the Atreides mythology a little bit, which is like, yeah, okay, Leto Atreides is he's yeah, he's kind of that like you said, Claire, this sort of like uh, sort of like generically, like empty vessel, good guy. Yeah, he's he's like upright and honest and upstanding, and kind of has that like I I chop down the cherry tree and I cannot tell a lie sort of thing. But the grandfather is basically portrayed as a sort of like rich playboy mm-hmm. who didn't who didn't really wasn't interested in ruling or governing. He was interested in in bullfighting and blood sports and and being and being just a rich aristocrat, you know, uh, living on prior plan of caladan which it's implied is a pretty pretty cushy gig because it's a <laughs> basically like a water world they don't have any any resource issues there so so that's interesting as well because the family the, the family background just is, is kind of just keeps getting hinted at throughout the book it's actually kind of one of like of of sort of like aristocratic dissipation mm-hmm. um and uh almost like that sort of almost like if you think about the the sort of transition into modernity um, in uh, Great Britain, for example, where you had these kind of like rusticated old nobles just sort of like living off the names of their houses and their rents. And then you had these kind of younger upstart um, merchant aristocratic families who became immeasurably more wealthy um, sort of in the manner of the Harkonnen by um, by harnessing the power, the new power of industry. And I think that there's there's some elements of that um, in uh, in Dune as well, where this kind of like almost chivalric code is, is sort of revealed to be inadequate to the modern world, but then the modern world's rapacity is also portrayed as being really terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's a sort of despairing vision because uh, what what is the alternative? And then I, I guess, Claire, as you pointed out before, I mean, the alternative is some version of like the uh, sort of like indigenous ecological balance um, uh at least as as Herbert imagined it, that that's the sort of way out which never really gets realized in any of the books. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. One question I, think, I had watching the film that I, I I can't remember if the book answers, which is like, what happens to Caladan when they leave?
2: <laughs>
3: like, are there people left on that planet, or do they just take everyone with them?
2: It, it's like a peaceful, flourishing utopian world. Maybe they uh, maybe they just slid down into. Mutual aid and Anarchism, (laughs) you know, one thing I thought the movie actually did well, although they could have done a little more with it, was complicating um, Leto's this generic, uh, you know, this generic benevolent wise man in that, like, the one element of his strategy seems to, which is never really spelled out is desert power, right? Like he is wiser than the rest of the imperial bureaucracy because he doesn't believe for a second that there are only a few 10,000 freemen. He thinks there are millions of them. And his big plan is to harvest them like a natural resource. He keeps talking about desert power and throw them into a massive battle with these genetically engineered orcs from another planet, which on the one hand, this is portrayed as as his goodness and wisdom that he realizes they're there. Um, but he just doesn't seem to have really consulted them about this plan in any, in any real detail. Um, which I thought was you know pretty pretty clearly pointing out uh, the human complicity as well as the you know consequences of their complicity in in extractive campaigns. Um, Oscar Isaac, who I generally think very highly of, I think could have played into that a little more. He definitely was going with like his two noble facial expressions um, throughout <laughs> in, like we pretty love much those any facial situation. Expressions. You know, <laughs> Well, we do. I, he doesn't have to do any more. than that.
4: Uh, There, I think if you talk about some of the things that get excised and uh, unfortunately uh, excised from the book, I mean, one of the the book has all these really kind of talky set piece scenes, and one of the really good ones, it's in the movie, but it's portrayed totally differently in the movie, is when Paul attends his father's like um, council meeting, and in the book, Paul. Um, In the book, the meeting basically ends in dissipation and Paul notices, like he he says in prior meetings that he'd been to, um, there was always an air of decision and finality when these these council meetings wrapped up. But this this meeting on Arrakis, after they've taken the planet, um, ends in kind of dissipation and confusion. And Paul, of course, it's not put this way in the book, but Paul basically begins at that point to think, um, uh uh-oh, is my my dad a huge dumbass <laughs> who, is, who, who is in fact totally inadequate to the task set before him um are we are we in fact doomed do we in fact lack that lack the sort of like the the rigor to respond to the to the um, uh, challenges that are marshaled before us and that um, that fear um, and that sense that like his dad, like a nice guy, but maybe maybe just not smart enough and subtle enough and tough enough, um, n- gnaws at him and then comes back in an interesting way as his father becomes a sort of part of the the religious artifice that he and his mother begin building around themselves once they fall in with the with the Fremen.
0: Right after is his dad uh... gets 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 Sean Beaned there, yeah, it is. T- totally, I yeah, and I think that that is one of the strength as a movie. Like, if I were making this movie, and if I was only going to make the first like, third of the movie, like, I, I mean, I did feel like all the dialogue was like sandwiched between like, almost like they were almost like the dialogue was like interstitials between like like of a spoken word interstitial between like a '90s music video or something. Like a huge wall of sound dissipates, and then people are able to say their one line, and then another wall of sound takes off. You know. And I would have loved to like Dune has all those great scenes that you just were talking about, Jacob, and the dinner table scene where there's like all these sort of political machinations going on. And then and I pulling some of those out instead of like jumping awkwardly to the desert may have served the movie a little bit more because I still kind of feel like a lot of ways this movie was kind of like Lynch's approach without the front heavy sort of exposition he's hitting all the major plot points and kind of moving on and not letting like the characters really marinate or talk to each other all that much um and i think as you commented they're like spending more of their time sort of gazing wistfully at the desert or caladan that they're going to leave than they are actually sort of you know behaving like people on this um that they found themselves in yeah yes, everyone's
3: well. like a way less interesting way less fun version of themselves i mean we've talked about <laughs> that in the context of the duke harconan but also like gurney halleck you know who in the book is like this like troubadour bard figure that is like delighting the troops with songs on its ballast i mean I, I i think that probably would have come off corny and weird in this movie but i do miss that that sense of like conviviality and comradeship that they have with one another um, it like sort of explains why they are throwing themselves into the situation, you know, hand in hand. I think the only moment you really get with that is like when Paul goes like run, running and hugging Duncan Idaho, who inexplicably they're really close. But yeah. you know, you don't get that. You don't get that familial love even within the members of the family in, in the film.
4: Uh, and Duncan Idaho also, you miss out on. I mean. <laughs> He's such a weird character because Herbert, you know brought him back in all the subsequent books and made him so central to his universe but he actually plays a relatively like minor role as a family retainer in the original dune but the one the one thing that you do get is that he absolutely wants to fucking bang lady jessica um, <laughs> and 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 then but then he gets well, she's not and,
3: married She's not married,
4: that's right, and he gets, um, and then he's like, and because there's, in the book, there's suspicion, they they know, they kind of know there's a traitor, and suspicion falls on her, because she's Bene Gesserit for a variety of other reasons, and they sort of, like, set Duncan to keep watch on her, and he does, but he really wants to fuck her, and he's also <laughs> a drunk, so he gets really drunk and sort of reveals the fact that he's been spying on her. Sets in motion a bunch of realizations for her as well, um, and has some plot impacts uh, down the way. And it was like, I wish—I don't know—I wish Jason Momoa is just like a just like a sexy dude. Like I kind of wish that they had allowed a little bit more of that interplay instead mm-hmm. of just having him be kind of like daddy to little Timothee. Uh <laughs> I like—I don't know—Rebecca Ferguson is much more formidable and up his alley than Timothy is. I'm sorry to say. <laughs>
1: I think uh, this is, this is the part where I jump in and am a buzzkill. Cause I have to go to a meeting in a few minutes. So uh, let should we, should we wrap this up since uh, since I'm pushing it to the internet when, when I have to go, unfortunately this dream has to end. Um, any more thoughts on, on ecology or resources or anything else before we, Say goodbye until tomorrow
3: I, I mean thousands so. but none
1: <laughs> <laughs> we have only four more four more hours of dune chat so hopefully we can we can touch on some of these things I, I do think that the um, that Jacob the the points you're bringing up about um, sort of the geopolitics of the whole situation are, are something that we're going to follow on Thursday with, um, Kelsey Atherton and Matt Galt and Edward and someone else, perhaps Brian.
0: Yeah. Daniel Immerwar, a historian who thinks a lot about Dune.
1: Yeah. What do we have up uh, tomorrow?
0: Tomorrow we have, uh, we're going to be talking about the mysticism and uh, sort of the psychedelic culture and drug culture of Dune. And we will be joined by David Cleon, who is another noted Dune fanatic, and Harris Durrani uh, to talk about how a lot of that stuff was appropriated from Muslim culture.
2: We'll also be having uh, Shail Lovon, who covers psychedelics and the mind for Motherboard. And... Yes will have uh, some pretty interesting things to say about it. I think she liked the movie. Interesting.
1: And she's That'll been be the, the top reporter on sort of the commercialization of um, psychedelics, which Claire was talking about earlier. So mm-hmm. I think can add uh, a lot more context there.
2: Yeah, the as you were saying, Claire, the the dual the dual purpose of the spice is just so inherently fascinating. It's not a choice like a lot of other people have made. It's one of those things people have ripped off um, so much stuff from Dune. And um, this is one they seem to have not done among many other things. It's just technically, it's a fascinating way to get into different elements of the plot and connect yeah. them to one another.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the like the big missing context of this film is the fact that they don't talk about the Beleriand Jihad. They don't talk about the fact that like, artificial intelligence is banned for centuries and you know like technology is all psychic and mental so the fact that there would be a drug that is also essentially like a fossil fuel that powers space travel those are one and the same because all technology is technology of the mind um that's like i think the, like even just hinting on that would have made the whole sort of psychic and theogenic pageant of it all much more comprehensible mm-hmm. so i'm excited to hear you guys talk about that that's
0: a great point um, well, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, both of you. This was uh, this was really fun.
4: Yes, thank me. you indeed. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me.
1: Thank you. I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play us out with our with our theme music. there we go. I feel like I want something more like pounding here, but it's good. Martial drums, yeah. of some
0: sort. Could probably
4: Do Mandalorian a nice theme.
3: Score.
1: Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> Well, thank you, Claire and Jacob and Tim and Brian. We'll see you tomorrow.
2: Thanks, I, uh, everyone
1: on Twitch. Bye. 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 Bye.
4: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.